Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this Retina UK information evening for the Oxfordshire area. Uh, Retina UK are hosting a series of webinars and information events on different topics and geographical locations, and we'll be delivering at least one every month. So we're really pleased to have a number of excellent speakers join us this evening. Uh, we're welcoming Mr. Kamin uh, Shui from the University of Oxford. Tony Shrub from Sight and Sound Technologies and Jamie Sargent from My Vision Oxfordshire. So our speakers will be talking through a number of different subjects um, over the next couple of hours, including medical research and clinical trials for people with uh, inherited retinal dystrophies, uh, an overview of technology solutions available for people with sight loss, and then the services that are available to people with inherited sight loss in the Oxfordshire area. There'll be plenty of opportunities this evening for you to ask questions, um, and there are a couple of ways you can, you can do this. Um, the best way is to type your questions in the Q&A section, um, which is at the bottom of your screens if you're on a, uh, a desktop computer or a laptop, or under your reactions tab if you're on a mobile device. But these questions will then be asked um, by the team on your behalf uh, at the appropriate time. So please leave your questions throughout the presentations um, so we'll have them ready to, to be answered at the end of each session. We will endeavour to answer as many of your questions as we can. However, any questions we're not able to get to today will be followed up um, over the next couple of weeks. So thank you again for joining us. And without further ado, I am delighted to introduce our first speaker, Mr. Cameron Shui. Hello everyone. I'm just going to bring up my presentation. Um, okay, hopefully, can you see my presentation? We can. Thank you, thank you very much, Matthew, for the introduction, and also thank you very much to Resna UK for me giving me the opportunity to speak tonight. Um, I'm going to try to give a summary of what I do in my research group in University of Oxford and also a bit more generally about the Oxford Eye Hospital and what type of uh, research and clinical services we offer for patients with retinal diseases. Um, so my background is um, I trained uh, in Oxford in the area and I did a, a fellowship in Melbourne, Australia, and also previously done research in Cambridge at the Molecular Biology Lab there under the MRC. Uh, and now have a research group which is investigating retinal diseases. In my clinical role, I uh, work as an honorary consultant, vitro retinal surgeon. So I look after patients with retinal disease and I perform also retinal surgeries. So just, um, I want to go back to basics about the retina. I know that many of you probably already know what retina is. Um, the retina is at the back of the eye and it is the layer that detects the light that comes into the eye. Uh, the structures at the front of the eye essentially help focus the light onto the retina. And the retina is neuronal, i.e. it's nerve tissue, much like the brain. Um, during the development, it is actually an outpouching of part of the brain that becomes a retina. So from its anatomy and the way it works, it's very similar to how the brain works. And the cable that connects the retina to the brain, the optic nerve, is again also just an extension of that nerve tissue. The retina has blood vessels, you can see in the bottom left picture coming out of the optic nerve head. And these supply the blood flow to the entire retina, including this central region called the macula, 
in the center of that is a fovea, and that is where the sharpest vision is. Uh, so when you when you have macular degeneration, the center of this region is what's affected. The retina has very distinct anatomical layers. If you cut it in cross section, and nowadays we have OCT scans. If you ever go to a retinal clinic, you probably will get an OCT scan, which is an incredibly high resolution uh, laser scan of the retina. And you can actually see the layers within it. Um, and the main layers are the three layers of cells. And the, gre the green cells are the photoreceptors, which detect the light. And they send the electric impulses or signals up to the next layer, which are the bipolar cells. That relays to the next layer, which are the ganglion cells. And these are the cells with very long axons or cables, which go all the way through the optic nerve to the brain and send the signal into the brain. A lot of the retinal diseases that we're going to be talking about and interested in are the ones that affect these green cells, the photoreceptors, uh, which often degenerate uh, either with age, also with genetic conditions. And also in AMD or macular degeneration, the very the bottom layer, the red cells, uh, which forms this carpet on which everything else sits on and support the green cells, these are the ones that degenerate first in macular degeneration. So with that background, um, I just want to give you an overview of what we do in the Oxford Eye Hospital. Um, and we're based in the West Wing, which is a new part of the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. Um, we're one of the quaternary or tertiary centers for eye diseases, which means we have a lot of regional referrals, including sometimes national referrals that come to us, especially our retina service is highly developed. Uh, we have a great interest in research and also clinical services. We have uh, clearly a clinic for macular degeneration. Um, it is now very high volume treatment for macular degeneration of the wet type uh, with injections. And increasingly, there may be new treatment coming in the horizon for dry type of macular degeneration. And we are also involved in some of the studies to treat this condition. Uh, in addition, we have the vascular diseases section, which looks at diabetic, look after diabetic eye patients, and also patients who've had vein blockages, such as retinal vein occlusion. Um, we also have a retinal inflammation service that's called uveitis. Um, and patients with these conditions have sometimes autoimmune diseases, uh, which also present in the eye. And then the perhaps the most relevant part for tonight is the inherited retinal dystrophies. Uh, in this area, we are really one of the UK's leading centers, if not the world, one of the world's leading centers, uh, because we have pioneered here uh, some of the first gene therapies to be trialed in patients, and those include um, choroideremia and also X-linked retinitis pigmentosa uh, due to a gene called mutations in a gene called RPGR. And more recently, we have started um, treating children and young adults with RPE65-related Liber congenital amaurosis. This is a very devastating early onset type of inherited retinal dystrophy. Uh, and now there is an approved gene therapy called Luxterna. So this is nice approved and it's administered in a, one of only three centers in the UK. That's London Moorfields, Oxford Eye Hospital and Manchester Eye Hospital. Um, so we, ha we have a lot of experience in delivering the surgery for gene therapy. And that, therefore we are now one of the centers for that. In addition, if you do have an inherited retinal disease, uh, you may be referred to our hospital for genetic diagnosis uh, because we are one of the, again, a genetic center with an extremely well-developed panel which covers 
the vast majority of diseases that are known. So we are able to identify at least 50% of patients uh, in, in what the mutation is in their family. And with that information, uh, we can also then also offer the genetic counseling uh, to tell the patients about the implication of that for their children and relatives. And finally, the surgical aspect uh, for retinal diseases, such as retinal detachments, macular holes, that's um, in adults. In children, we also look after a very specialized condition called retinopathy of prematurity, or ROP, as well as other genetic and developmental conditions affecting the back of the eye in children. Uh, the very bottom is a link, which I'll show again later, is that we have a clinical trial unit which has been involved in running all the important pioneering studies, and they have their own website, which gives you a really good detailed overview of all the studies that are ongoing and that may be recruiting at the moment. And my research group, which is based upstairs from the clinic in the Nuffield Department of uh, Neurosciences, um, is looking particularly at retinal diseases and developing new treatments for these diseases. My interest is in inherited retinal diseases, macular degeneration, and uveitis, which is the inflammatory conditions of the eye. And I'm, I have been developing gene therapies for these conditions, but also increasingly, we are also turning our focus to uh, somewhat more broadly applicable gene-independent treatments, which could be uh, more widely used in, in a wide range of patients. Um, just to go back to our recent history, uh, we treated our first patient with gene therapy, uh, and that time that was for choroidremia, back in October 2011. Um, and later on, a few years later, we, we also gave the world's first gene therapy for X-linked retinitis pigmentosa due to RPGI mutations, and that was in 2017. And since then, we have treated, I, I'd probably say almost 100, maybe something like that, patients with gene therapy of various nature. Um, so just to tell you what gene therapy is about, um, it's a new type of treatment compared with uh, traditional medication. It is using a viral particle to deliver a working copy of a gene into the cells at the back of the eye. So if you do have a inherited retinal disease, you probably have a mutation which knocks off the function of an important gene that's required for the, for the retina to function properly. And without that gene, the retina cells will gradually die, and that's how the vision is lost. But if we can put a normal copy of that gene into the cell using a virus to deliver that, uh, then it substitutes your mutant gene and provides a sustained function. And therefore, the theory is that the cell will then stay alive and keep working. And this particle that we use to package the gene is called an adeno-associated virus, or AAV. It's not known to cause any disease. It is a very benign, non-replicating virus. Um, so that means it doesn't even um, proliferate. It's not able to divide. So it's been engineered genetically to be as benign as possible. And it does have an extremely good safety profile and is now widely used as one of the most common gene therapy vessels. Um, the way we deliver it generally is to inject it under the retina and that's done, done using techniques which are established in retinal surgery. So you threw a vitrectomy, which is to remove the jelly in the back of the eye using a keyhole technique, and you're using an extremely fine needle uh, to inject that vector slowly under the retina. And 
I have a video to show you approximately what this looks like. Um, so on the left of this video, you're seeing a very fine yellow needle. Uh, it's actually a, a smooth Teflon tip that's 41 gauge. And it has been inserted through the retina and using a foot pump controlled micro injection device, we're able to slowly deliver a gentle stream of the viral particle fluid under the retina. And you're seeing on the right-hand side, um, a cross-sectional OCT acquired during the surgery showing fluid being injected under the retina, which lifts up the retina. This creates an artificial retinal detachment and that actually spontaneously resolves within a few days with quite, quite a smooth and rapid recovery of the vision. Um, depending on the gene that's been uh, treated, the genetic disease that has been treated, um, we have different functional measures. Sometimes it's visual acuity, sometimes it's the retinal sensitivity, sometimes uh, some of the benefits are more marked in the dark conditions where it improves night vision. Uh, in terms of the results for choroidremia, which is a condition that's relatively rare, it affects about one in 50,000 males, um, and it has this very characteristic pale retinal appearance. Um, we have done studies in the early phase, and this involved uh, here 12 patients, and these are the graphics showing you the trends and changes in their vision. The blue line being the treated eye and the and the sorry the red line being the untreated fellow eye. And so you can see that there are a couple of very good examples where the vision picked up quite rapidly within the first two or three months after the gene therapy in the treated eye in blue, whereas the untreated eye, which was superior to begin with, uh, stayed pretty much level. And over the course of the subsequent five years of follow-up, the untreated eye gradually declined in vision, while, for example, the, in this case, uh, the treated eye had sustained improvement in the vision. Uh, in some patients, the vision was quite good to, even at the beginning in both eyes, and the treated eye uh, kept the same level as the untreated eye. Um, but that's it's difficult to know from, from uh, at a five-year five time point what will happen in the longer term. Um, in, in this, another case, if you look at uh, patient age six, um, the treated eye, the visual acuity level was sustained over the first two years while the untreated eye declined. So overall, um, if we took an average of all these patients, you'll find that the, the blue box here showing you the treated eye um, the average mean visual acuity went up slightly over two years follow-up, while the, the untreated eye, the, the green box, uh, came down slightly over the same period. And that's, that was significant over that period through statistical analysis. So that was a really promising early phase study. And um, the subsequent studies um, are still ongoing and the, the results being analyzed. Um, the study is now run by a company called Biogen, uh, which is a US pharmaceutical company. So overall, the conclusion from the choroidremia gene therapy trial is that firstly, it is possible to deliver the choroidremia gene safely using the surgical technique. And we're able to show some improvement and at least maintenance of the treatment effect in uh, a good proportion of patients over a long period of follow-up. 
Um, the subsequent study was in RPGR or X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, this is actually relatively more common. It's one of the most, most common X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. It affects about, um, the, sorry, it accounts for about 20% of all RP and typically presents with night blindness uh, before the age of eight with progressive visual field loss. Um, and usually patients are severely visually impaired in, the, in their thir 30s. So this would be a more typical RP with these black pigmented spots called pigmentocules, uh, which is quite characteristic of RP. In this condition, uh, the gene therapy had a more marked effect. Um, I remember seeing this patient for the first time and taking a sort of double look at this image on the left, where I just could not believe this was the same patient. Um, this is a retinal sensitivity map of a patient uh, for the top line being baseline, and then one month, then three months, and then four months after the gene therapy. Um, it doesn't take much expertise to guess which eye is the one that's being treated. And in this case, the left-hand column, the visual, uh, the sensitivity area significantly enlarged over just a few months, while the untreated eye, uh, we're seeing no, no change over that time. And what is even more remarkable, perhaps, is that when you do the OCT scan, we were seeing changes in the anatomy, the, the layers, the structure of the retinal layers on the scan were improving over time, um, which suggests that the photoreceptors, the cells, the blue cells, if you remember in the first picture, actually seems to be growing taller. And that really is remarkable to see that being a result of gene therapy to, to fulfill that extra function that was initially deficient in these patients. So this treatment was... Um, uh, had really great feedback for some of these patients who had the red, really optimal dosage. For example, this patient described about a month after treatment, my vision was beginning to return to the in the treated eye. The sharpness and depth of colors um, slowly begin to see was so clear and attractive. The visual field exploded and I could see so much more at once than ever before in that eye. Um, so he, he felt it was, the eye was undoubtedly better uh, than the untreated eye. And he was really looking forward to having his second eye treated. So this really is a great example of the potential benefits of gene therapy for this condition. Um, it's not without its challenges, I have to say. So in this particular trial, the dose of the gene therapy was increased in steps. Every few patients, the dose was escalated um, because it was important to establish what was the best dose and what was perhaps a too high a dose. And what we found later in this study was that in the very high end of the dose, we're starting to see some signs of inflammation in the retina. Uh, in this case, you were seeing these bumps appearing. Uh, excuse me about the background sound. Is my children going to bed? <laughs> um, so you're seeing these little bumpy areas under the retina, which are signs of inflammation. And this required steroid treatment. Uh, we typically inject some steroid into the eye or around the eye. And that seems to take care of this inflammation quite effectively. So all the patients who had inflammation had this treatment and they actually did settle um, later on. So overall, um, we found that in the RPGI gene therapy study, um, it showed very high, very high promise once, when it was delivered at the optimal dose. And uh, there was even signs of retinal structure being improved over time. Uh, inflammation is a problem and we are aware that it's related to dose being too high. And that's, that's why these studies are done in a clinical trial setting to establish 
what is the best dose for future applications in, in natural approved treatment. And again, this, uh, this study is ongoing and it's been taken on by biotech companies to the later stages in the phase three studies. Um, you'll find with a lot of these studies is that in the early studies, it's possible to run it through an academic institution such as University of Oxford, but later on, due to the huge costs involved in running a phase three study, uh, they're often taken on by larger biotech companies. Um, here, I'm going to show you something slightly different. Is how are we going to where are we going to go from here? How can we make the gene therapy safer and more precise to optimize the treatment effects? And in Oxford, we tried a robotic device. Um, here, this is in collaboration with University of Eindhoven in Netherlands, uh, a company called Precise, um, founded based on from engineering students. He devised a robotic device that uh, pivots around the eye and is able to actually be used for surgery uh, to make the instruments extremely stable. For example, you're able to inject um, gene therapy vectors precisely under the right, correct layer of the retina. And it might even be possible to deliver a drug into a blood vessel within the retina in the future. Now, these are things that cannot be done by hand. Uh, here are some early phase <laughs> trials of this device. I know that this is already for use in, in patients. And we did actually run this trial. Um, sorry, I went back. Uh, in this video, I just wanted to show you um, how steady it is. I don't know if you remember that just a video I showed you earlier where the, the needle head was slightly shaky because it was held by a human surgeon. But in this case, uh, this needle coming from the bottom left is just absolutely still and it is sitting exactly at the right spot on the retina. Um, the instrument movements takes into care, uh, takes account the curvature of the eye so that it will, it will take the instrument up a little bit as you move sideways. And here it is being used to deliver a drug under the retina uh, in a really controlled fashion. It may be possible to deliver the drug slowly over 10 minutes, and that's not possible to hold an instrument steady for 10 minutes by a human. So this type of uh, instrumentation improvement could potentially make gene therapy tr uh, treatment even safer and even more effective in the future. Um, in the last couple of years, um, gene therapy has got even more com complicated and elaborate. In the past, um, it was already extremely novel to be able to deliver a working copy of gene, of the entire gene into the cell of the body. Um, but now, the gene editing technology has really taken off. And this was um, acknowledged by the Nobel Prize in 2020 to Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, who invented or discovered this technology. And it was based on a bacterial immune response that bacteria use to defend themselves against viruses. And it's an extremely ancient and well-established uh, enzyme which is essentially able to perform molecular surgery on the DNA. Um, what this enzyme is able to do is use a small molecule of RNA to find the exact genetic sequence within the DNA uh, because they bind each other in a complementary fashion. And then once it's bound in the right target, it will be able to perform a very precise cut in exactly that position. And once it's performed the cut, the DNA repair mechanism then can come along and repair that, that, um, 
that segment of DNA. But you can manipulate this process to introduce an extremely precise edit, uh, such that you can correct a single genetic mutation, that very specific one that may, might be present in you. Um, so this technology is remarkable because it's a step up from what we already do, which is to put an entire copy of a gene and express it in the virus. Um, if we can deliver this mechanism, this little machinery into the cell, we might be able to correct the mistake, that little single spelling mistake in your own DNA that's resulting in the disease. And once that's been corrected, then in theory, everything else about the gene is, is all correct. Um, so this type of precision may be possible, and there's already ongoing work to turn this into a treatment. In, um, and early studies are already being carried out in human trials in the US. Um, the problem with this technology is to, to limit the expression of this machinery so that once it's done its job, it's then erased from the system so it doesn't keep on making new edits. Um, so how could you help with these endeavors? If you come to the eye clinic, perhaps uh, you will have a genetic diagnosis and you will be examined. And it's, it is useful to see your eye, especially over a long period of time, to establish a natural history of the condition. Um, because these conditions are generally so rare, uh, we have now a very significant um, cohort of inherited renal disease patients with very widespread range of mutations in different genes. And we are now categorizing these patients um, and studying how um, the retinal degeneration progresses over time. These are very important because knowing the natural speed of progression allows us to then do a clinical trial where we hope to measure an improvement uh, in disease progression by performing intervention such as gene therapy. Without knowing how fast the disease progresses naturally, it's difficult to produce any scientific results that could convince regulators that a treatment is effective. Uh, in, uh, also, another different aspect is that increasingly stem cell technology has, has progressed so that if we take a bit of your blood sample, we are now able to turn that into a miniature retina um, group of cells. In, in this case, this is patient-derived uh, blood that's been conver converted into something called induced pluripotent stem cells, which is then differentiated into retinal organoid. A retinal organoid is a, is a cluster of cells arranged in layers, much like uh, the retina, and these then differentiate into different cell types within the retina in a test tube. So instead of using, for example, animals to study these type of diseases, which are often extremely expensive and, and also time-consuming, um, also with ethical concern, um, we're able to now use patient-derived cells to test out new treatments. And that allows us to then translate onto the next step to potentially enable a clinical trial. And still, this is not without his huge challenges. Um, here is an example of the sort of gene panel that we use to test for patients when you come with an genetic retinal disease. Uh, this panel is now expanding to about 200 genes, and it covers so many different genes that it's not possible to tell by eye uh, what the retina looks like. It does not tell you what gene it is. So if you were to devise a, a specific treatment for each of these genes, it really is an incredibly large task. Um, and some of the genes are way too big to be packaged into a viral vector. Although gene editing might be possible, um, I think there's now challenges 
with regulatory authorities about how it's possible to identify and test therapies in such rare groups of patients. Uh, by the time you've tested a particular therapy, you might have almost run out of patients to then have an approved treatment for. So these novel gene therapy concepts really challenge the traditional model of regulatory approval for drugs. And that is a big challenge for us. Um, what about gene-independent treatment? That might, that might work for more people. And that is a direction my group is increasingly taking, although we are also working on specific treatments. Um, we have an interest in developing treatments that may work in a more uh, widely applicable way. And by that, I mean, uh, the reason why cells die in the retina, it's often due to uh, being stressed from metabolic stress. And that is maybe due to the genetic mutation that they have. The other thing is there may be a low grade of inflammation. Once you have cell death, then it attracts immune cells, which then creates a, a kind of stressful environment for all the neighboring cells, which then more likely to die. So perhaps these factors could be treated to slow down the disease progression in general in inherited retinal diseases. Um, if we can intervene in an early stage, such as this stage B, where the cells are stressed but are not dead, um, with an anti-inflammatory agent, or, sub or interventions that can reduce the cell sensitivity to metabolic stress and prevent cell death, we might slow down the disease sufficiently to alter someone's well-being. If um, a patient presents at a later stage where a lot of the cells have already died, there are also new treatments being developed which can work for these patients, and uh, that includes something called optogenetics. And in this treatment, we are introducing a light-sensitive protein into the remaining cells of the inner parts of the retina. So those relays and ganglion cells which project the axons into the brain may be turned into light-sensitive cells if we can give them the protein that the light-sensitive cell photoreceptors possess. Um, so the resolution of the vision may not be as good as you know having the photoreceptors, but it's possible now uh, to introduce vision in that in that way. And actually, there's already a clinical trial ongoing in the U.S. Uh, led by Jose Sahel to look at this uh, method of treatment. And finally, if you have lost all of your cells, it may be possible to replace certain cell groups. And uh, some of the most of the encouraging work is has suddenly, uh, sorry, currently being taken, uh, being um, performed in macular degeneration treatment where the RPE layer, which is the pigment epithelial layer that supports the photoreceptor, the bottom layer of the retina, we can make a monolayer of these cells in the Petri dish and roll them up and implant them under the retina. Uh, so for example, Lyndon de Cruz at Moorfield Eye Hospital is currently looking for patients who might be suitable for such a transplant. Uh, we are one of the patient identification centers in Oxford. So we're looking for patients, for example, with wet macular degeneration, that have not responded well to the traditional intravitreal injections, have had a rapid drop in vision despite those injections, but still has um, intact cells that could be rescued by the transplantation of the underlay. And so these studies are uh, happening at the moment. Uh, in terms of macular disease, uh, macular degeneration, uh, which in a way it is also an inherited renal disease, it's increasingly recognized that there are important genetic risk factors for AMD. Um, using genetic panels, it's possible to identify those risks in people, um, especially if you have strong family history, 
Um, we have ongoing studies which are trying to identify these risk factors. Um, for example, recently, we're starting a, a study to look at the interaction between these genes. These are the genes involved in complement and involved in the way lipid is handled or fat is handled in the, in the retina. Um, we're looking at patients who have these genetic risks, but also looking at the effect of diet uh, in, on the progression and development of AMD. If you have a gene that makes you susceptible to AMD, and on top of that, you have a very high fat diet, it probably will put you on a much higher risk of developing a disease. The other obvious well-known stress factor for that is smoking, which puts a huge oxidative stress on the retina. And that will be a much more significant factor in patients who are originally genetically susceptible in the first place. So I think the direction of travel for AMD research will be that to identify patients who are at particularly high genetic risk and then try to modify um, the environmental risks which may interact with those genetic risks and it may be even possible to alter the genetics as well using gene therapy approaches. And that's something we're working on. And finally, a little touch upon the inflammatory condition, which I'm interested in. And this whole group is called uveitis. Um, these are not genetic diseases, but their underlying mechanism is not well understood. They're autoimmune diseases. So genetics probably does play a role, but environmental exposure to infection may also predispose you to developing these. Um, this is inflammation within the eye that affects the retina, and it could be divided into anterior, intermediate, or posterior, depending on the location of the inflammation in the eye. Um, we're using, using, uh, using models of this disease. We are now looking at developing new treatments which can suppress inflammation. If we can develop these treatments, it may well be applicable to a much wider range of uh, diseases, including inherited renal diseases, where there is a low-grade inflammation, as well as macular degeneration, where retinal inflammation plays a role. Um, finally, I just want to um, thank you for listening to this talk. I hope it makes sense. And uh, it's important to stress the role that vision charities uh, such as Retina UK play in the research for retinal diseases, um, because despite the, the importance of vision for patients, um, unfortunately, it is often seen that eye diseases are kind of niche in, in the general perspective of medical uh, research funders, because of course, they're going to think about uh, cardiovascular diseases, uh, diabetes, neurodegenerations, uh, these big and mental health issues. Um, funders are being stretched in all directions. And so what attention they have for eye research is sometimes limited. So it is important that for our charity to support this research we do. And for patients to participate in the trials we do, we've always had great participation in Oxford. Uh, that's something we're very grateful for. Um, increasingly, we're also involving patients in the design of studies, particularly clinical trials, to make sure that the design suits um, patients um, and get their perspective on things. And finally, uh, the research we do train a budding group of young researchers uh, who might become future leaders of the field. So with that, I'd like to acknowledge my team um, and also extended collaborators with Robert McLaren, Jasmine Kitch, the research team uh, for the clinical trials in Oxford called Ergo, and also the engineers in Netherlands who have collaborated in the robotic studies. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks, Cameron. That was really, really insightful. Thank you for that. 
Um, so I need to make uh, an apology at this point. Um, we appear to have had a bit of a technical hitch um, and a number of people weren't sent the link. So a number of people have now joined us. Um, so for those who have joined us late, we will be sending out a link to Cameron's presentation and in fact, all of the talks this evening afterwards. Um, but we do obviously still have Cameron with us. So we have an opportunity for uh, our next Q&A session. Um, so for those who have um, recently joined us, um, you can leave your questions in the Q&A section, uh, which you'll find at the bottom of your screens um, if you're on a, um, a computer. If you're on a mobile device, then you'll find it under your reactions section. So any questions you have for Cameron, then please do share them now. Um, so we've got a couple of questions that have come in, Cameron. Um, the first is, I was part of the... 100,000 genome projects and haven't been contacted with a genetic result yet. What can I do now? Okay. Um, I'm not 100% familiar with the study, but this is led by Professor Susie Downs in Oxford, I believe. Uh, well, it's not just her, of course. Um, it's recruiting, it recruited patients from all over the country. Um, I believe uh, it's I don't think the idea is for individual patients to be given their diagnosis. I think the part of the, stu the study aim is to generate a huge pool of patients in order to study general aspects of human genetic diseases. Uh, so perhaps the study was not intended to give you a personal diagnosis, uh, but I do have to check on this one because I have not been involved in leading that study at all. That's great. So if, if people are looking to get their um, their genetic diagnosis, their their faulty gene, if you will, um, what, what process should they follow? So if you have an inherited retinal degeneration, for example, your optician might pick this up, uh, you might have a family history, then I suggest that you could be referred to the Oxford Hospital if you're in this region. And that's usually through your your own ophthalmologist in your local hospital or through your GP. Uh, and the, the person who runs these genetics clinic currently are Professor Robert McLaren and also Miss um, Jasmina Kapitanovic. And they have genetics clinics every Thursday. Um, and in that clinic, you have the whole workup, including all the pictures, the history, uh, and probably most likely a genetic blood test where we'll take some samples of blood and send it off to run on these panels that we have established. These panels are very complex with 200 genes. And also um, remember that human, human genetics are not identical. So in a lot of us, we'll have natural variation in our genetic code. Not every variation is a disease-causing one. In fact, most of them are not. So these can under, then get experts to review the results to look at the, each individual change to, to decide whether that is um, responsible for the disease that you have. So it takes sometimes six months, sometimes a year, to get a final clarification of the diagnosis. Um, but in the, in the end, um, about 50% of patients will have a firm genetic diagnosis. Excellent. Yeah, we, we do know that that is a um, bit of a problem for some people at the moment in, in getting their genetic diagnoses. Um, and we do have um, some resources that we can, we can support with that one as well. Um, so you mentioned earlier about um, optogenetics. Um, how far away do you think that will be before it's actually a um, firm treatment, something that's, uh, that's more mainstream? 
Yeah, the, the concept has been around for about 10 years. Um, but last year, the first human study was published. This study only published, I think it was only one patient that they published early results for. This is a study conducted by Joseph Sahel's group based in um, um, Pittsburgh in the US. And it, they show that by introducing the optogenetic protein into the retina of a person who is essentially end-stage RP, they were able to rescue some visual function. Um, it was an interesting study because the protein that they introduced only was able to detect in a very infrared or very like red range of the visual spectrum. And the signal need to be boosted with special glasses. So the light coming in is being picked up by the camera, which then converts that into a special wavelength to stimulate this protein, uh, which then triggers the visual stimulus that goes into the brain. Uh, so it's a rather complicated setup, but this was the first dem demonstration of what could be done uh, with optogenetics. Uh, we are also developing this, especially Jasmina Kapitanovic, my good friend and colleague in Oxford. She has a particular interest in this. And I can see that in the next few years, we may well have something that can approach a clinical trial. That's fab. Thank you very much. Uh, so another question has come in. I've heard about electroshock style therapies for people with um, RP. What therapy is that and how do I get it? Okay, so this is unproven uh, to date. There has been a number of trials, including we have done one a few years ago in Oxford, where the concept is that if you have a retina that doesn't detect any light, um, by stimulating it with some low-grade low electrical stimulus, you can induce something called phosphine, which is kind of like shadowy light color waves moving about just from the electrical stimulation of the retina directly. Uh, and the idea is that that kind of low-grade stimulation keeps the cells more alive or, or stop them from dying and therefore slowing down the disease. But it's, it's a hypothetical thing. And so far, all the trials have not really shown conclusive effectiveness for this type of treatment. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, so what is the what is the current state of um, stem cell um, treatment therapies? OK, so stem cell um, clearly is it uh, sounds great if we can just replace the cells that you have lost with new ones. Um, that sounds great, doesn't it? Um, but the problem is that the retina is very complicated, like the, a bit like the brain the layers of cells connect to each other with lots of what's called synapses, so neuronal connections. And these synapses are not easy to regenerate. You may be able to put the cell back into the right position, but they don't necessarily wire up in exactly the way that they did originally during development um, because the retina forms in a very slow gradual process from an embryo to a fully formed human retina at your nine months of gestation. And during that process, a lot happens. Um, so to re recapitulate that in an adult where the retina is degenerating and you're putting some stem cells back into the retina and hoping that they will reestablish right connections is really quite remarkably difficult. Um, what is most hopeful at the moment is to replace the RPE layer for macular degeneration. So in this condition, the disease characteristics are a little bit more simple because most of the degeneration affects one single layer of cells. And these cells do not need 
very intricate connections. Uh, they play a supporting role for all the cells above by providing nutrients. So by replacing this single layer of RPE cells, um, it is hoped that we can keep all the cells above it happier and stay alive for longer. Um, and this is already being tried by Lyndon de Cruz's group. As I mentioned, we collaborate with him in terms of identifying patients. Perhaps in the near future, we'll start to treat some of patients ourselves um, is to implant a stem cell derived layer of cells into the retina to replace the RPE that has degenerated in AMD. Um, having a stem cell transplant is a very significant surgery. Um, currently, that's been refined. Um, so it's really not suitable for patients who only have mild disease. Um, the other thing is that you need to immunosuppress for quite a long period of time to prevent your body from rejecting these cells which are not your own. So there are certainly challenges to overcome for this to become widely you know, available. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, so we have a question here. So it reads, I had an electrodiagnostic test in May, which confirmed the disease doing honeycomb retinal dystrophy. Uh, unfortunately, I suffered an adverse effect with my vision um, deteriorated slightly. My consultant was not surprised, stating he had expected it. Is this a normal after effect of this test? Um, that doesn't sound like a normal after effect. Um, I'm not sure exactly what change in vision a patient is describing, but electrodiagnostic is generally not going to affect the natural history of your condition. It is a purely a diagnostic test, and the electrical stimulation we're talking about here are absolutely minute. I, I have no idea how that should affect the natural course of the condition. It's unlikely to me. Um, Doyne's honeycomb dystrophy famously was discovered by Professor Doyne, who actually is a professor of ophthalmology in Oxford. Um, and in fact, we have a we have a conference dedicated under his name, the Oxford Congress. Uh, and Doyne's dystrophy has a very unique um, appearance. Um, in fact, people were thinking about developing gene therapy for it. So maybe it's possible to have a treatment in the future. It is relatively rare, however. Um, yeah, I'm, well, I'm sorry for that event, but I, I can't really see how electrodiagnostic might have caused it. Okay, so the follow-up for that was um, that they can still see um, uh, the central flashing lights, but have lost some central vision. So um, perhaps a, a conversation will be had with your ophthalmologist um, a little bit further into um, into why they may have expected those results. Um, so with obviously we've, we've kind of gone through a number of years of uh, I need to say that at the moment of uh, of, of COVID nineteen. Um, and they were able to bring treatments to um, you know, to market very, very quickly. Um, why does it take so long for um, treatments for other conditions to come to market? It's a good question. Uh, the COVID pandemic was extremely, it's an extreme example of how fast things could be done if the entire world put its effort to something. Um, and of course, Oxford played an important role in that. Um, what has done is made Oxford a really a, a great world-renowned center for gene therapy and vaccinology, which now increasingly uses gene therapy technology. 
Um, for example, the messenger RNA vaccine is packaged in a nanoparticle, and it may be that CRISPR, the, the gene editing machinery that I described earlier, could be delivered using similar technology. And many groups are already working on this. Um, so COVID has led to, in some ways, benefits for research um, through that side channel. Um, but the, the challenge for eye diseases is that most of the patients with inherited renal diseases have a gene uh, that is extremely rare and only affects a very small number of people. And so um, it's difficult to get the funding and also the, the amount of effort that goes into that research. Uh, it takes a lot of time for one lab to work this over many years to get it to anywhere near fruition. And then there's a huge challenge to then translate that into a treatment because you have to convince biotech sector to take this on as a potentially profitable, marketable treatment. Um, so these are big challenges. But actually, in Oxford, we have been remarkably successful in, in translating our basic lab research and early phase proof of concept in, in, the, in the lab to attract funding from outside, including Wellcome Trust, including later on founding a spin-off company, which then um, carried the intellectual property into treatment development. And that was led to acquisition by an even bigger company, which then took it to phase three clinical trial. The medical clinical trial system is extremely expensive, unfortunately. And so it takes a huge amount of funding to go from a lab to a, to a bedside. Perfect. Um, you've you actually just touched on the next question we have here, which is what are the different phases of a clinical trial? Okay, generally there are three phases. The first phase is to establish safety. Uh, so it doesn't matter if a treatment works well or not, does it cause harm? And so the first phase is about just safety. Uh, and then the second phase is starting to look at its efficacy. So does it actually do something of benefit? And uh, the third phase is a clinical, uh, is called a regulatory approval phase, where you go to the medicines agency and ask them, what would it take for this drug to be approved? And, they, and then you sit down and discuss with them these criteria. And you'll say, I want 30% of patients to see a three-line improvement. If you don't meet that goal, then the treatment is not good enough. And so these, these goals are set before your trial even starts. And the phase three is probably the most stringent step of any drug uh, treatment uh, approval process. Uh, hence, it's extremely expensive. Uh, also in phase three, the medicine quality control of the production process is very important. You have to make sure that what you test is exactly what you will sell eventually. Um, and when it comes to a complicated agent, uh, that's not a small molecule like a drug, but a complicated viral particle, the biology and the production process is extremely complicated and the quality control uh, accordingly. Excellent. That's uh, really, really helpful. Thank you. Um, okay, here's, here's one. Um, talking about CRISPR, as you, as you described earlier. Um, so I've heard CRISPR being described as taking a pair of scissors to cut up the DNA. How does it actually work in practice? Um, I think what this means is, obviously you can't go in and use two pairs of scissors to kind of cut that faulty section out, but how does it actually work in practice? Okay, um, that's a very, there are many doctors who don't understand CRISPR, so I'm not surprised that it's hard to get it. Um, so CRISPR is lit, 
the, the scissor analogy is actually a good one. Um, so imagine a very small protein. It, it is actually a machine. It has physical structure, and it actually has a molecular scissor that breaks a bond. And the DNA, as you know, is a double helix with lots of bonds in the molecules. And this protein is able to come along, find the exact right place of the gene, because inside this protein is a code, which is made up of RNA, a related molecule to DNA, which actually can complement the DNA. So the, the codes of the RNA molecule will match exactly as the opposite of the codes in the DNA molecule. And if you have a unique sequence that's like a barcode, there's only one place in the entire DNA genome that it will bind to. And that is potentially the gene of interest. Once that machine scrolling along finds that target, it activates a change in its shape and it actually cuts the DNA exactly in that place. Once it's done a cut, then, then the, the body has a very elaborate repair mechanism because the body does not want DNA to be mutated. It comes, the machine then comes along to repair that area. And that's where uh, you can manipulate the system to introduce a mutation that you like. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but this is happening at an extremely molecular level. Um, so the idea is if we can deliver this, this protein into your cell uh, with a predefined targeting RNA, it can come into the, the gene of interest and, and cut it and then repair it to correct the mutation that causes the disease. That makes perfect sense. Um, e even I was struggling with the kind of the whole analogy of the scissors. So that I, I can actually now try and almost almost picture that that kind of happening. Um, so is that kind of thing delivered by way of a vector, as you would do with a treatment, or is that? Um... Yeah, it's it's quite a large molecule, as you imagine. It's a very complicated machine, and uh, so it's a large protein, and but it can just about now fit inside an AAV particle. So the vector that we have been using to deliver gene therapy so far is now potentially possible to deliver CRISPR using that vehicle. So if that's the case, so I, the way I understand with some different gene therapies are um, depending on the gene will depend on how big the vector needs to be. But does that mean then that the vector you use for, for CRISPR could technically be used for all different types of gene therapies, or is that, again, different? So the, the AAV particle can only fit 4.5 kilobase of DNA. That's its cargo limit, 4,500 4, bases of DNA. Um, now, a lot of the retinal disease genes are much bigger than this, unfortunately, so they just don't fit. Sometimes you can deliver it using uh, two particles, and then in the body, they, the DNA join together maybe to form to reform the whole gene. Um, but many genes even exceed double the capacity of an AAV. So, but with CRISPR, it just about fits. Uh, and people have been engineering the protein to make it smaller and more compact so that it will fit. So there's a lot of biology effort going into making CRISPR fit into vectors so it could be delivered as a treatment. That's really cool. That's really, uh, really, really interesting. So do you think CRISPR is the way forward or are we still looking at a, a combination of different methods of... Um... Oh, certainly there's a lot of interest in CRISPR because if we can do CRISPR safely, 
and that is a big, very big if, um, then theoretically you can correct and tailor treatments to individuals in an unprecedented way. Um, but the, the concept challenges traditional medical approval process because every treatment for every patient with a different mutation is going to be a different CRISPR uh -huh. molecule. So how could you possibly approve thousands of different, slightly different versions of CRISPR? You know, can you just approve the whole concept and just say that you know you can make it slightly different to tailor to the individual? Um, so these will be up to the regulatory approval process to decide what, what the way forward would be. But in theory, if ethics was not a problem, uh, it might be possible to tailor individual treatments uh, for individual patients. Um, but the, the risk of it is that we have to make sure the CRISPR does not go out of control because you have to be able to turn off this machinery once it gets into the cell so it doesn't create a random mutation, which then could be uh, could have a negative effect. And again, there's a huge amount of work going into that aspect at the moment. Fabulous. Um, so we have a, a, another question here. Um, why can't I have a whole eye transplant? Okay. That's a common question, actually. Uh, it's, it's incredibly complicated. The, the connection between the eye and the brain uh, through the optic nerve, that cable carries so much signal. Uh, also, uh, the nerve that sends that axon from the retina to the brain is one single cell. So it's a remarkable how long that cell is going from the, the eye to the brain. And that cell has a cell body inside the retina and it has an extremely long process, a little leg that sticks out into the optic nerve that goes all the way into your brain center called lateral geniculin nucleus. And that's in the midbrain. So once you've severed that connection, that cell then dies. And so far, we've not worked out a way to stop that cell from dying once its leg been chopped off. So um, the concept sounds attractive, but it's actually remarkably difficult to deliver because we have not been able to prevent nerves from dying once they're injured. Uh, in fact, that, that's obviously, if you can do that, you can generate the spinal cord, you can probably generate parts of the brain. So that would be the holy grail, but it's not a reality yet. Excellent. Hopefully, maybe in the future. I mean, the, the science that we are now seeing is absolutely phenomenal. Um, since my diagnosis, you know, we told 10 years away, you know, this is magic 10 years that people have been hearing for, for the last four, four or more decades. Um, but I, I do feel we're, we're as close now as, as we've ever been. Also, we've got um, Lux Sterner as, um, as one um, particular uh, treatment, as you, as you said earlier. Um, and the clinical trials that are ongoing, um, and the research, in fact, is um, is absolutely amazing, and so much of it stemming from the UK. It's um, it's it's absolutely um, fantastic what's happening at the moment. And Cameron, thank to you and your team for the kind of the work that you're that you're doing at the moment. Um, we have unfortunately come to the end of that hour. Um, that has gone so incredibly quickly. Um, and again, apologies to those who missed the first part of Cameron's um, presentation, but we will send out the recording so people can watch that. If there are any other questions, I'm sure we can uh, we can seek some uh, some answers to any questions that, that may um, come. So Cameron, thank you ever so much for your time this evening. Um, you're more than welcome to join us for the rest of the evening, but I uh, appreciate you're extremely busy. Um, so once again, thank you ever so much for your time.
Oh, not at all. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm glad I have the opportunity to speak. Um, yes, and great. Good luck for the rest of the session. Thank you very much. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks, Cameron. Bye-bye. So the next session we have uh, this evening is um, going to be with Tony Shrub from Sight and Sound Technologies, um, talking about all things tech um, and something I'm really interested in, which is wearables. So, Tony, over to you. Thank you very much. How do I follow that? How do I follow that? Um, I'll try. Okay, so uh, quite right. Um, wearables is what we're going to be discussing. Um, I'll uh, just pop a few slides for you. Yes, what's new? This um, is based around a much longer uh, webinar that uh, we produce at Sight and Sound. Uh, so it's rather condensed, time constraints. So I've, I've kept it to what's new in the marketplace and everything seems to be going wearable uh technology is such that this is the way they see um the equipment going now brief history um if i can make this move that's better yeah brief history of sight and sound technology we've been around for it says over 40 years we've been around for about 44 years now and we're the uh, leading provider of uh, equipment for people with low vision, blindness, and we also cover literacy difficulties. Uh, from our office in Northampton, we can audit companies, we can do assessments with uh, students, for example. Um, we are very much into designing solutions rather than coming up with a particular um, device, uh, piece of equipment, we can design a whole solution. Having spent money on that, we believe training and technical support is uh, very important. Um, I'm a great believer in training in as much that uh, you can spend a lot of money on software, for example, uh, might be JAWS, might be Zoom text. And if you don't know the full features available, let alone how to use it, uh, you're missing out and you've, um, you're not getting your full money's worth. So this uh, session will be an introduction to the latest technology. I say that some of it's been around for a little bit longer. Um, I'll introduce each device. Uh, I'll give you some live demonstrations. And as before, we can have a group discussion afterwards. So let's see what we've got. I'm starting off with something called a Sunuband. Um, this is one of the ones that is not exactly brand new, but it's been around for a, a little while, highly effective. Now the Sunuband started out, let me switch cameras and I'll show you one physically. Um, Stop that. Switch that. It's good, net this is. So this is the Sunuband. It's like a Fitbit, if you like. Okay. This is the working part. This is um, an ultrasonic sensor. This is a touchpad. There's two buttons on the side. Uh, one will turn it on. One will um, select the, a navigation mode. I'll explain that in a moment, uh, as well as various other things. Now, when this is worn um, and is operational, this will send out a signal that will hopefully detect obstacles. As it comes back and is picked up again, the device will vibrate. Now, the closer you are to an obstacle, the higher the frequency of vibrations. Now that's how the Sunuban started out. 
pure and simple. It detected obstacles. Um, it detected gaps in uh, walls, for example, which might be a door. And so you went about your way. It was not designed to be your sole means of mobility, but it certainly aided uh, people with low vision. Then they introduced an app. It's funny how everybody introduces apps, don't they? There is an app that works with this, but it opens up its um, applications extremely well. Navigation is the purpose of it, albeit uh, avoiding obstructions. But with the app, we can now get a GPS signal coming through um, iPhone, Android phone or whatever. And this, depending on how you hold it, if you hold it out in front of you, it will tell you what direction you're facing. Um, if you want to find an ATM, for example, a chemist, a supermarket, there's a whole list in the app of uh, points of interest that you might want to get to in your area. You can select that voiceover or talkback, depending on which uh, system you use, will guide you to that place and this will help you avoid the obstacles that might be en route. Um, and they're continually, continually developing the app to introduce more and more and more features. So that is where we're going to start with the Sunu band. Okay. Um, and the associated app that uh, you can download to your iPhone or your uh, Android phone. So let's move on, see what's next. Ooh, do, do. That one. Okay, this is something that is uh, relatively new and uh, it's called the Envision Glasses. And I'll bring that into view. Um, the original, bear with me, I've got to move something out of the screen. It's obstructing my view. That's better. Get over there. Right. Um, that's not the Orcam My Eye, it's the Envision Glasses. Uh, it was developed originally the other way around to the Cineband in as much that it was an app on your uh, mobile phone. Um, using the camera of the mobile phone, it would uh, allow you to read text. Uh, and that was it, essentially. Um, but as they developed the glasses, they introduced more and more features within the app. Um, and the glasses, incidentally, you might recognize are based on uh, Google Glass, too uh google didn't want to use it so envision came along and said do you mind if we do not at all and away it went so read text um and including handwriting which is uh unusual for a lot of devices at the moment um introducing new features and incidentally envision who produce it do updates every month to improve what's available and improve what is already built into it Reading text, uh, it'll describe a scene. Now, I know a lot of this can be done uh, using apps or on your phone, as is the Envision app and the camera, but this gives you a hands-free uh, method of doing it, and you're not waving your hand, your, your phone around for everybody to see before somebody grabs it. Right, let's just show you how this works. Let's switch back to where I was. Oh, no, other way. Right, that's me. Okay, let's remove these. Let's show you this is the Envision Glasses. So, this is the Google Glass 2. Okay. It's exactly as 
Google produced it, so it does have a, a, a screen on the front, but we won't be using that. It attaches to shush. It attaches to uh, a pair of frames. Now these ones are rather sort of skeletal. There's no lens or anything like that. Um, they're made of titanium, so they're extremely uh, robust, and they will adjust to fit any head shape, size, or whatever. So if I attach this, it's come adrift. There we go. And you wear them in that fashion. Okay, now I can see in this uh, screen some text. It's saying 2010, so the time, and it's just said to be home. Now, this could be a problem because you might not hear it, but I'll try. Um, I can, if that distracts me, I can disable it. Now, reading text, let's have a look. I've got a book here. Okay, uh, it's all gestures. So I can. That's just tell me it's going to see. I can swipe forward. It tells me read. I'll double tap it. Instant text, I'll explain in a moment. I'll swipe forward. It says scan text. I'm going to double tap it on the touchpad there, and I'm going to put this until I hear a lot of ticking. There you go. It's just taking a picture. Now, this does require an internet connection. And depending on the amount of text, it will take longer or, or shorter. Reader, heading 229. Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? It's reading it in Chinese because it thinks I've looked at a Chinese page, probably because I was shaking when I did that. There we go, let's try again. If it reads Chinese again, I'll give up. I'm, I'm over. Eleven done. Apart from training, was to read Arabic newspapers and summaries to English of any reports that touched on defense or espionage. At first, he had written to had soon developed a sense of what his bosses he was getting. Yeah, we can hear that. Tony. You can hear that. Good. Okay, so I'll stop it. I'll swipe down. Swipe down again to exit. And I'll do it again. And it gives me tips all the way along. Okay, so that's just scan the page of the book and it'll read and I can carry on and on and on. Now, I did say there was one called Instant Text. This doesn't require an internet connection. Um, so if I go into Instant Text, it's now it's looking around for text anywhere it can find any. It's reading my computer screen. So I'll stop that. But what I've got here... It's a Christmas card, okay? There's only a small amount of text on it, so instant text is good enough for that. But it's got handwriting. That's the important part. That's what I wanted to show you. So where am I? Instant text. I'm going to double tap. Instant text. Now it's looking for text. See, Jesta. Let's see. Fury, Christus, FR, Jacka, Kasten, H, Reface, C-A-I-R. All right, okay. It's writing. It's not very good. Um, Mary, Christmas, Frard. Merry Christmas. I get the gist of the message in that card. Not 100% accurate because it's not using an internet, it's on board. If I was to switch to an online mode to do that instant text, it would be far more accurate. Let's come out. You can instantly using back scan, scan multi-pages, and it'll store it as one book in effect. And you can export that to a library on the phone that you're using with it. Let's go out. I'll come back to call because that's a brilliant feature. Identify. Let's try identify. Double tap to go and describe a scene. Let's look over there. Double tap. Describe scene. 
living room with a Christmas tree and presents. There you go, living room with a Christmas tree and presents. Uh, incidentally, welcome to my living room. I don't have the uh, luxury of a, a studio, but here we are. So describe a scene, it's done just that. And there's a whole range of features within this that will find objects. It'll recognize uh, people. It'll give me a tone if it's somebody and I can teach it uh, that person's name. So from then on, it will uh, say it looks like whoever. Detect light. And as I say, you just go through all these features. There is one other thing it does. I'm going to go to the home screen. I'm going to hold, there's a hinge here. I'm just going to hold that. Describe scene. So you can give it voice commands. Uh, that is one of the new uh, developments that uh, Envision put onto it. We'll let it run its course and then I'll explain this call to you. A Christmas tree in a room. Yeah, okay, I just got the Christmas tree that time. Didn't recognize it was my living room. Let's go to this call. Call an ally. Now this is unique to um, Envision in as much that there's another app available called the Envision Ally. It's funny that. Um, whereby friends, relatives, colleagues could download that to their uh, mobile device, register. This doesn't cost anything. Um, and then I can nominate that particular person as an ally. If I go into call an ally, it will list all my allies. Now, if I double tap on that, it will then send a notification to their app. They respond to that notification. And now we've got a two-way conversation, a two-way video conversation from the camera on the front. So they can see exactly where I am, what I'm doing. Could be in um, an unfamiliar place, need to know the layout of a room, for example. Could be something mundane, like what color is this shirt? Or as uh, does happen with somebody that uses one of these, when he's on the bus uh, going home from work, he uh, always calls his mother and they have a two way conversation. And very often, as he's looking out of the window, she'll say, Your stop's coming up. So that can be extremely useful. Sam Colson. Yeah, no, we won't call Sam. But they did introduce another. Are you familiar with IRA and IRA agents? They changed, they added this bit uh, recently, whereby they linked in with IRA. And you can call an IRA agent. Now, that could be a volunteer anywhere around the world uh, to do the same thing. So if you can't get a hold of one of your um, allies, then you can certainly call an IRA agent. And a lot of people are registered with IRA anyway. This now allows you to contact them hands-free using the camera on the front. Come out of there. That's better. And so you go on. But as I say, does require the app to work, um, does require internet connection. So if you're out and about, uh, I've got this connected to my home one. Uh, I just connect to a mobile hotspot and it works extremely well. So that's the Envision glasses. As I say, Envision are updating those on a monthly basis. The app used to be um, by subscription, but they recently changed that. So if you want to play around with the app, 
uh, using your mobile phone camera, it is available uh, to download and there is no subscription anymore. It's uh, free of charge. Okay, so that's um, the Envision glasses. Let's have a look at the next one. Now this, you may well have come across, it's called the Orcam. Um, it's very similar in its operation. Um, there's a huge cost difference though, uh, the Envision being a lot less. Um, but the Orcam works in a very similar way. It doesn't require um, a phone app. It will work straight out the box. It doesn't require an internet connection. So that's the benefit of going this route rather than the uh, Envision route, Envision glasses route, uh, if cost isn't an, a, a consideration. All right, I'll just briefly show you how this works. Um, let's switch back to there again. So in this case, I'm wearing a pair of glasses. Okay, they could be my prescription ones. And there's a magnetic attachment. It's just like zip tie. So you can put them on any um, frames that you might have. This is the device. There's a camera on the front there with two LEDs above and below should, you, uh, should it need more light. A couple of magnets there it just clicks on let's just turn it on there you go just clicks on the side and it goes through a startup process with blue flashing lights and red flashing lights and who knows what else has voice commands exactly the same as the envision glasses uh but it won't read handwriting there's one big difference they probably prompted by Envision Glasses recently introduced Describer Scene, so you can do that as well. Um, and a lot of the features are very, very similar. Okay, so I'll go back to the book and hold it in front and we'll tap the side, just one tap this time. There you go. Chapter 10, done. Apart from training, was to read Arabic newspapers and write summaries in English of any report. Now, to stop it, I do a gesture like that in front of the camera. There you go, it stopped. That would have read the whole page. That is a bit slow, but you can, on both of them, you can speed up or, or slow down the voice to suit your own requirements. So that's the Orcam. Um, just to show you this. No, wrong one. Describe scene. Doesn't want to do it. Text is too small. No, I'm not reading Try to hold it Describe the scene. Aha. It's not going to do it. I've just had a thought. What's in front of me? Objects found. Okay, so no relevant objects found because the list in this one is different and it works differently uh, to the Envision glasses. Um, so if the what's in front of you is not listed in, in the um, device, then you're going to get something like no relevant objects found. Okay, but it does work very similarly to the Envision, no internet required. Um, there is an app available, but you can just use that to adjust settings. Uh, once the text is, is gone, it's gone. So whereas the other one, you can export it to the library on your phone. 
And as I say, huge cost difference. So let's see what else. that's going to go off forever now. Hold on. So there's the all-cam, my eye. Um, let's let's go on from there. Incidentally, all-camera are advertising extremely heavily at the moment with something called a read. Now, that is virtually the same um, as that all-cam, my eye, but it's longer and it's handheld. Um, there's a trigger button on, on the device and there's um, you press and there's a laser. Now, this could be um, a rectangle or an arrow, depending on how you set it. You point the arrow, for example, at the text, release the button, and again, it reads it just as that one does. But you do need to be able to see that laser light on, on the page, or if it's the rectangle, it will frame a section of text that you want to read. As you move it away from uh, the page, that obviously will take in more text. Uh, cam were pushing it as something for the for people with low vision, but you've got to be able to see that um, laser to use it. And then we're just pointing it anywhere. Uh, this is brand new, and uh, this was developed by Oxford University. It's called the Oxionics. Um, it's now produced by a company in Oxford called Oxite. Excuse me. It's designed specifically for central vision loss. Won't do for anything else. And the way it works is, um, let me show it to you, then you get a proper idea. Okay, the way it works is this. There's a camera here in the centre on the front. At the back, there's two eyepieces for you to view it, just as you would a pair of binoculars held in front of you. And in between those two are a couple of screens. Now, those screens will, uh, the, the software will enhance that image, and those screens will refract, in effect, the image to your peripheral vision. So, thus getting rid of your central vision. Uh, and when it works, I'm careful with this, but when it works, it's brilliant. But it's not going to work for everyone. And we stress that. And there is, we do go through a, let's call it a triage form. Uh, before we demonstrate this, because, as I say, it's not going to work for everybody. If you've got multiple eye conditions, the chances are uh, it won't work. If it's macular degeneration, uh, um, style guts or anything like that, it, it, it's probably going to work. So for viewing, it's great. For watching television, it's good. In fact, there's a chap, he um, tried it. It works so well. Um, the room we were demonstrating in were in floods of tears. Uh, he's seen his wife for the first time in 40 years. He went down and watched a football game. That's all he wanted to do. I want to go and watch a game of football. He did using the Oxide Onyx, and he's absolutely over the moon with it. I can't demonstrate it because I can't get a camera into here. It's controlled by four buttons on the top. You've got a zoom in, a zoom out, a power button, and you've got a um, menu button to change the brightness, for example, uh, to enhance it when you're watching television. They say you can read with it. I've found very few people that can actually read <coughs> using it. And there are various ways you can enhance the text, one being to invert the brightness so you get a negative image. 
Another being to just show the outline of a, a letter, for example, uh, rather than the full uh, word, it will just show the outlines of that word or those letters, uh, which makes it slightly easier. Um, this guy I, I mentioned to you, I took him out of the hall we were in and uh, there was a clock at the bottom of the hill and he could tell me the time from quite a distance. It's got to be 150 yards away. As I say, when it works, it's brilliant, but it's not going to work in every instance. So that's the Oxide Onyx. What else have I got for you? Incidentally, I mentioned that uh, this is a sort of a condensed version of uh, webinars we've been doing for a number of years. If you go onto our YouTube channel, Sight and Sound Technology, you'll find all sorts of videos showing more um, equipment that we do from handheld magnifiers right the way through to Braille machines. Okay, where are we? Oxide Onyx, let's see where we go. Okay, let me show you this. It's a Haber One. Uh, this is a new device, but it's not a wearable, it's a holdable. Can you say that? I've just done it. It's a holdable. It works in conjunction with tablets. Now, that's my iPhone. That's my iPhone to which it's connected. And I will show you here. This is the Hable one. Okay. Let's put that phone back on. Let's go into it. Now, this is the way you use it. You hold it back to front as a Braille device. Uh, it's no good trying to, to do it like this. So back to front, and if I end the passcode, I know not one, two, up six, one, zero. Now you all know how to get my iPhone. How clever is that? Okay, two buttons here, two vertical buttons here. I'm going to hold one and press the other, and that's now moving to my home screen. If I do the opposite, it goes the other way. So let's press those two together. Okay, that's now opened. I'm not going to read that. Incidentally, that's from you, Matthew. Um, but that would now, using voiceover, perhaps COVID buds or whatever, I can um, have that email read to me. I'm going to press H again. I'm, I shouldn't be looking at the screen because I... Screen that's better. Mail. And that's taking me straight back to the home screen. So using the Hable One, it'll work on a tablet, it'll work on a computer, it'll work on my mobile phones. I can navigate uh, totally my phone, and it's pretty much the same size as an iPhone. Okay, Double slightly thicker. Sheets at home. Right, stop it. Double okay. tap to open. Okay, so using that in your hand. As you go around, your phone can be in your pocket. So again, a security aspect, you're not waving your phone around um, or listening, um, swiping, sorry, swiping, not listening, you've got to listen to it, swiping around uh, to read your emails. You can reply to your emails using Braille. If you're a Brailleist, you can input your text using the keys here as you can with um, uh text messages emails and any text you want to in enter onto your phone it could be notes you can use the keyboard here so that's a Hable one incidentally if anybody's interested in that if they go onto our website sightandsound.co.uk 
and we're running a price draw and on the home screen you'll find details of that um so if you if you're interested in that by all means go for it okay so let's go back to where we were now uh as i say this is just a very short um introductions to the the sort of things that um sight and sound are able to uh, provide for people with low vision those with no vision um website's best place to get all the information uh and i've tried to keep this to up-to-date technology uh and because matthew was interested uh wearables hence the title so moving on from there there that's where you can find more information uh, our telephone numbers there we've got sales at sightandsound.co.uk or sightandsound.co.uk is our website incidentally again on the home screen of our website towards the top you'll find a link called self-referral um we don't mind you phoning we don't mind you emailing but if you want to go through this self-referral uh, procedure uh Click on the link, sign in, put all your details and what you're looking for, you know, the URI condition, uh, what you would like to be able to do. And we'll see if we can put together uh, a solution for you, contact you and uh, come out and demonstrate. That is something we do do. We do home demonstrations, no charge, no obligation and certainly no pressure. We've got uh, people such as myself, assistive technology specialists, all over the country that'd be pleased to come out and uh, show you what's what. Uh, you might find us at uh, various events around the country. Um, I was with Retina UK in Bristol. And my colleagues did other ones around the country uh, over the last few months. So that's sight and sound technology. Very, very shortened version, uh, but I hope it was useful to you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tony. That was uh, absolutely perfect. Um, one question that, um, that's, that's come up is with the um, with the Envision glasses. Yes. Um, can you hook up like Bluetooth earphones and things? Yes, you can. That? You can yeah. with that. You can with the Orcam as well. Brilliant. So they'll both uh, they both got Bluetooth capabilities. Incidentally, uh, I said it connects to an app on your phone. Uh, that's by Bluetooth, but it doesn't need to be permanently connected. Once you set it up. You can make uh, disconnect that and uh, use your Bluetooth uh, headphones or whatever. That's fantastic. Uh, but obviously, any, anybody is um, either in work or looking to change roles, and you need support with equipment for work. So through the Access to Work scheme, or even if you're a student um, with the Disabled Students Allowance, um, the team at Sight and Sound are able to support and um, provide advice for different equipment and things that you may. Um, May benefit from as well and i think most of the equipment you've talked about tonight is um is available on those schemes as well it's available through access to work certainly and um uh through the disabled students allowance into which we are very heavily involved at the moment uh we've got a number of access centers ourselves but uh yeah it's all available through there if you need demonstrations or if you need any advice or help give us a call by all means Brilliant, and uh, yeah, I can uh, I can absolutely vouch for um, the service of sight and sound, um, having personally used them before, um, 
And obviously, they're, they're very friendly events as well. So if you do come along to a site village events and such like, you'll always see them there. They've always got the biggest yep. stand in the room. So uh, come along and visit them. And uh, you know, if you do need any further advice from them, we will be sharing details um, about how you can contact Sight & Sound afterwards as well. So, Tony, once again, thank you ever so much for your time this evening. Uh, um, pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Okay, so on to our last session of the um, of the evening. Um, I would like to um, introduce to you uh, Jamie Sargent, who is from My Vision Oxfordshire. I think I've got that right, Jamie. Um, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. We've recently changed our name. Some of you may know us by our previous name, uh, Oxfordshire Association for the Blind, uh, but we are now called My Vision Oxfordshire. Um, and yeah, uh, I just come and. Thought I'd come on here and talk a little bit about what we do, the services we offer, um, the different ways that we can support you. We're a very um, personalized service as a charity, dealing with everything from uh, grant applications to, to down to the very basics of helping you deal with sort of sight loss and and the per, the the procedures behind that and sort of the mental health potentials behind that. Uh, we offer a, a very wide range of services, everything from um, tech demonstrations and um, training. So a lot of the equipment you saw in the last demonstration, um, particularly things like the Onyx glasses and the Orcams, we, we have it in our offices and we do demonstrations based on those. If that's something that, you, that you'd like or you think we, you, you, would, you, you would benefit from. Um, we tend to go down a very sort of um, uh, personalized step-by-step -step path. So recently we've been working with uh, charities that uh, help with access to work that was previously mentioned. Um, and we set up sort of step-by-step -step courses. So we have clients that will come to us and say, okay, I used to do X, Y, Z as a job. And we go, okay, so what do we need to do? And what are the steps to take to get to that point? Whether that's helping with uh, access to work funding, whether that's helping with getting equipment and training on that equipment, or whether that's just simply working up to getting the confidence to find those jobs and applying for CVs and, and, and helping with all of that. Um, we do that with not just things like work, but we do that with ed education. We do that with hobbies um, and pretty much anything you could think of. We, we, we tend to be more based around sort of you and your individual needs. So a lot of our sessions will start off with a sort of just a chat. We'll sit down, we'll have a cup of tea, uh, maybe some cakes, pretty much everyone in our office is obsessed with tea and cakes. So we'll sit down and we'll have like a nice personal chat with you, see what the things that you might be struggling with are, what the things that you might need a bit of help with, or even if you just want to sit down and have a chat and we'll we'll work out your goals and, and how to get there and we'll be with you every step of the way. Uh, whether that's with uh, you working with one of our in-house counsellors um, who are both visually impaired themselves and are expert in dealing with um, everything from coming to terms with your sight loss to um, working quite closely with people that are suffering with things like Charles Bronné syndrome and helping them find ways of coping and adapting with that themselves. Um, we like to think of ourselves as a service that can be um, very much pushed towards um, your tailored needs without being too overbearing. So we work closely with people of all sorts of ages and, and, and sort of backgrounds um, to help them with whatever they think they would need at a comfortable rate for them. So um, 
a lot of what we do is tech training. So people coming to us with um, the want to get online and the want to be able to communicate with family and friends, which they think they might not be able to do anymore um, because they can't use a phone, for example. So we'll sit down and we'll, we'll, we'll work with you for as long as it takes. Sometimes it will take uh, a week, sometimes it will take six months. Um, but we will, we will work with you and train you um, in a very much personalized way to yourself. So whether that's um, working on an iPad and using just sort of a voice commands um, in, in conjunction with voiceover um, to, for you to be able to access the internet, for you to be able to access like things like FaceTime to, to, to contact your family, to be able to do the things that you know are important and, and maintain your own independence. Um, aside from sort of the regular appointments that we have where we where we as I explained help you out in sort of whichever capacity you might like we have things like um, social groups and befriending services um, which are, are, are quite vital to the people that that attend them it's a is a chance for people to meet other other like-minded peers that are that are suffering either with sight loss or have family and friends that are suffering with sight loss um, and they get together. Sometimes it's sort of a pub event. Sometimes it's just a coffee morning. And, and, and they're located in various places all around all around the county. Um, and all of them do various different things. So some of them are very much tailored around sports and some of them are tailored around just going on a walk and having a chat. And we try to keep these things as inclusive as possible and try to give it a space where people can come and go, you know, I've been struggling with this and get some advice from other people that have been struggling with a similar sort of um, problem and and you know very much working together in a group um, to help people and help uh, help each other out very much building a sense of community around that um, uh, and that very much relates to our, our befriending service which is something that we offer out to anyone that um, feels that they would benefit from it and essentially what that is is we have a uh, a volunteer that would either call you up once a week or twice a week or cut and uh, might not just be calling up after lockdown um we we've started coming into more doing home visits so they'd come and visit you for an hour or two and sit down and have a cup of tea take you on a walk um go shopping whatever it is that you might want to do and it's sort of just a place to touch base and 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 a friend and a regular face that you know you can communicate with um as you can imagine there's there's some people out there that um, would really benefit from this if they're if they're sort of feel like they're on their own or isolated it's a very good place for someone to reach out and and to have that sort of connection um, and, and all of our volunteers that are involved in this are, are sort of trained under confidentiality and everything like that to keep you feeling safe and to keep you feeling like you know there's there is someone out there that you can touch base with and, and get advice from um, we, we, we like to keep ourselves as open as possible to a lot of this stuff. So a big part of what we do is our helpline, which kind of works as a, a, an offset to the things like counselling, the befriending and the appointments where people can call up and literally anything. Sometimes it even works as just a switchboard where people will call up and ask us from just a phone number or it works all the way through to we do online uh, training over the phone for things like voiceover where we can sort of use technology at the moment to integrate seeing what you, you're doing on your phone and, and using a, 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 a virtual handset and we can tr do training with you no matter where you are in the county. If you can't get to us, we can train you on 
almost anything. Um, we, at the moment, are pushing quite a lot towards simplification and making things very simple. So using things like iPads to um, reflect um, what a lot of equipment will do. So for instance, using magnification, using text to speech and all of that, we uh, are very, very proficient in teaching no matter what level of, of training you've had. Like we work with a gentleman that is in, in his hundreds um, who's never even touched a computer and we got him using an iPad. He was FaceTiming his grandkids. He was um, sending out emails, writing out documents, all of which he'd never done before. Um, so we do try to make it very personalized to you with what we're trying to do. Um, kind of no matter what it is, we, we, we like to help out in, in whatever way we can, whether that is you know, training or whether that is just the support side of things. Um, as you mentioned before, with sort of getting some help in terms of process of things. So um, whether that is applying for things like PIP, whether that's applying for things like access to work or grants to get phones, um, we're, we're very much open to help with whatever you would need. Um, and we appreciate that sometimes these things can be difficult and there's boundaries to um, accessing things. So in conjunction with that, we offer a lot of um, different equipment that we can donate out to you. So for instance, an example of that would be CCTVs, which if you haven't heard of those before, you think of it as a computer, uh, computer screen or a television screen with a big camera behind it that acts as a magnifying glass. And we have people that use these to do that, to read the daily paper. We have a gentleman that um, paints model trains with them, a lady that was a nail technician and now paints her nails with them. And we can offer those out to you um, almost as, as on loan uh, for an indefinite amount of time. And that's just one example of a ways that we, we kind of strive to get equipment and whatever you would need, no matter what circumstances you're in. So, we, we're trying to encourage people to come to us no matter what it is and no matter how big or small they think their problem might be and we're encouraging people to sit down and just open up that conversation and and we're, we're determined to say that there is a a way of us helping or a way of us finding you to get to that point um so yeah we're very much trying to push to get as many people to come um to us to, as possible and just see what what is out there we have most equipment that you could think of um, that would help it, it, with whatever, whether it's reading, whether it's using magnification, text to speech, or even things like cooking. Um, we, we, our aim is to give people back their independence and get into whatever it is that they, they, they want to be doing or whether, whatever it is that they did in the past that they, they feel that they can no longer do. Um, to help out with this, we do a lot of different um, uh, group meetups or training days. So for instance, before we did um, things like yoga sessions in groups, or we did, um, we've done in the past, things like access to Alexas and having groups come in and we show them how to use Alexas. Um, and all of these different groups that we have are on our website. And for instance, at the moment we've got, as was mentioned with the Onyx Oxide glasses, we're doing um, a big meetup where we're getting a, a few people to come down into the office and we're getting the developers and the people that manufacture the glasses to come in and basically do a demonstration and do almost like a triaging service between our clients. Um, so if that's something people are interested in, we encourage people to come. Um, as was mentioned before, this is something that um, 
is, is very useful for someone with central vision loss. I myself have a pair that I, I use frequently for things like um, going to museums, um, watching films, um, looking at pictures, things like that. And we, we're trying to open up a broad, uh, uh, trying to create a space where people can come in and feel comfortable to talk about what they might be going through and find solutions that work for them um, in whatever setting that is. So whether that's coming in, in in a group and looking at things and having demonstrations or whether that's coming in on a very sort of individual basis and working one-on-one -on -one with someone to, to get back into work, to get back into that hobby, to have a look at equipment that might help, have a look at um, ways to make the Christmas dinner, for instance, and um, have some training on using uh, kitchen equipment and finding that kitchen equipment that might help or um, getting into, we work with quite a lot of people that are into, into singing in choirs and finding ways that they can read the, the hymn sheets. Um, so it's a very broad range of things that we do and we do encourage people to come to us with whatever problems they have, um, whether that is, you know, a tech side of it and needing some training or whether that is, you know, I just want to know what equipment's out there. We're, we're, we're a charity, so we don't try and sort of push anything on you. We very much try to find the solutions that are right for you, whether that's financially um, ability to use them, whether that's um, just, is it the right product for you? And are you gonna spend a load of money on something that you need something else later down the line? We try and open that up to a safe, uh, try and open it up to being a space that people can come and feel, feel comfortable with expressing how they feel and what they want to get out of things and feel that it's a space that they can actually have the help and encouragement to get to whatever point that they feel like they, that they need to be in. Um, we're trying to encourage people to talk about, you know, what they might be going through and what they might be struggling with. Um, hence us offering our counselling and befriending service to try and get people back to a, a, a situation that they, they feel comfortable with the level of sight they have and they can, you know, move on and, and, and live a, a, the, the life that they deserve because we appreciate it can be difficult sometimes. Um, so... We, we've got a lot of inf this information on our website that you can sign up or um, alternatively, you can give us a call um, and one of us would be happy to, you know, either talk through it with you on the phone or uh, book you in for an appointment to come in. We do appointments regularly, Monday to Thursday, um, and we can sit down with you for an hour, hour and a half, however long you need um, and, and work towards whatever goals you're working towards. Um, and if that's something that, that you think you might be interested in, I do encourage you to um, give us a call or send us over an email. We work quite closely with a lot of different charities, um, whether that's access to work or whether that's working with things like uh, people like the council um, to basically get you to whatever point you, is necessary for your um, own, uh, own, uh, own place along, uh, along your journey. Um, and yeah, we, we that's that's sort of around about what we do. Um, if people have any questions about the services we offer, I realise that was quite a brief um, sort of introduction about it. Um, I'd be more than happy to answer. Um, I myself um, uh, suffer with sight loss. Uh, I have a condition called Labour's Optic Neuropathy, um, and we we encourage that most of our employees that are client facing do have 
some sort of visual impairment. So there is that ability to relate. And um, I'd say one thing that is particularly good about our services, people, when they come in, they're not talking to someone that doesn't understand. They're talking to someone that actually uses the stuff and that uh, um, uh, day to day has to go through the similar things to uh, the client that is coming in. Um, we, we find this is useful because we're not just showing people equipment that we're told is helping, we're showing people equipment that we are using and we're training people to use the stuff that uh, we know in a way that works well for us. Um, and the same thing relates to our counselling service. Our counsellors are both visually impaired um, and you know, know the struggles that come along with that. So we, we do, we, we, I do very much encourage you to get in touch if there's any questions you have at all about anything or if you just want to get touch base and, and see what stuff is out there for us to, uh, that, that might help you, whether that's just coming in for 20 minutes and having a chat and looking at a few bits of equipment or whether that's sitting with us twice a week um, for an hour and getting trained on an iPad or uh, a computer or whatever it is, we, we encourage you to come and we'd love to see how we can help out in whatever way we can. Um, and yeah, I, I open up the floor to any questions that people have or any anything that people might um, query or yeah. Great, thank you, Jamie. That's fantastic. Um, see if any questions are coming in. Whereabouts in Oxford uh, or Oxfordshire are you guys based? So we're based in the city, um, it's just down the Abingdon Road. So easily accessible by one bus from the city. Um, if you if you know the city centre well, um, any bus that comes from St Audates will take us to uh, will take you to us. Uh, we're actually located almost directly opposite the Park and Ride, uh, Redbridge Park and Ride. Um, we're very easy to find. We have on-site parking, um, but alternatively, we do or we are starting to um, get some community engagement officers. So we currently have one in the city who is involved in sort of planning social groups and events going on in the city. So we have various different groups, whether that's walking groups around Hinksy Park, whether that's um, sort of coffee mornings and things like that in Headington. Um, but that community engagement worker will also um, come to your house and do sort of appointments within, within your house, whether that's bringing equipment um, from our offices to demonstrate and show to you, or if that's doing training sessions um with you at home on your computer or on equipment we can bring we have one in the city and we currently have one in south oxfordshire so covering sort of henley tame um wallingford Dicot, places like that um at the moment we are looking to get um other community engagement workers in places such as uh Cherwell, west oxfordshire and places like that um but hopefully that will be coming in due course um, but yeah, at the moment we are based in the city and have the ability to sort of work around wherever you are. We do work with um, certain charities that offer like volunteer taxi services for people coming into appointments such as ourselves or the hospital or anything like that. And if you call up, we're more than happy to arrange that sort of taxi service for you if that's something you require. That's brilliant. Lovely. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, that's quite all right. We will be sharing details of, uh, of my vision Oxfordshire in our follow-up email. So um, Amazing. We'll be referral process into that. So yeah, thank you ever so much once again. Perfect. And my video back on so you guys can see me now. Um, so just to finish off the evening, um, we 
really should talk about Wrestling UK. Um, I'm assuming most of you know who we are. Um, so Wrestling UK as a charity, um, we do a couple of different things. So our support services, um, we have a number of them, very similar to what Jamie described um, for people in the Oxfordshire area. So as an organisation, we, um, we cater specifically for people with inherited respiratory conditions. Um, conditions such as respiratory pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, Stargardt's, um, and there are there are a number of others. So one of our one of our key services is our helplines. So we have a telephone and an email helpline, um, both of which are staffed by volunteers, um, and each of them have um, an inherited respiratory condition themselves. Um, so our Telephone helpline is open between Monday and Friday, between 9.30 in the morning and 9.30 in the evening. Um, the telephone number for that um, is 0300-111-4000. So 0300-111-4000. Um, and that is available for anybody, whether you're a professional, uh, whether you're somebody living with um, an inherited respiratory condition, or whether you're a family member or a friend. Um, to call and ask any questions about the conditions, about different treatment options, um, clinical trials, or if you just want to sit and have a bit of a rant about how you're feeling about things, um, our team are always there to um, provide that listening ear. We have a talk and support service, um, so we can match you with a volunteer with some, uh, some like-minded um, hobbies or interests, um, and you can have regular conversations with them over the telephone, that's another service we offer. So two of our um, newer services as well are Unlock Genetics. So as um, Cameron was saying earlier around the, the genetic testing of things, Unlock Genetics is a resource on our website. So you can find that at www.retinauk.org.uk forward slash genetics. And this is a suite of information that will literally take you from um, going to see a genetic counsellor at the hospital, in fact, how to get that appointment to start with, what that referral process looks like. It will go through inheritance patterns, um, a whole host of different information, and it includes some information there that you can take to your GP um, to uh, explain to them how important it is and why it's so important that you have a genetic diagnosis. It doesn't cost them anything, um, so there's no reason for them not to do it. So that's, uh, that's Unlock Genetics. And our latest um, product, if you like, is um, called Discover Wellbeing. And this, again, is another online service. Um, you can, again, find that at, uh, on the, on the Red UK website. And it's a, a self-guided um, tool which looks at three different areas. So uh, from point of diagnosis through to seeing changes in your sight loss and also about supporting others. Um, so Discover Wellbeing um, will give you the tools to, um, to kind of cope a little bit easier with, with some of the symptoms and things you may be experiencing or helping somebody else to, um, to cope with their, uh, their sight loss journey as well. Again, all of these services are free of charge for anybody to use. Uh, we have a number of um, publications that come out. So we have our main newsletter that comes out three times a year as well as um, monthly news updates on our, webs uh, on our um, 
e-newsletters as well. So a number of different things that we that we do offer um, as our as our uh, key services. We also host a number of events and these webinars, um, and you can see uh, all of the recordings of the webinars we've done over the past um, eighteen months on our YouTube channel um, as well. That kind of brings us towards the end of our couple of hours. It's gone really, really quickly this evening. And once again, apologies to, um, to anybody who wasn't able to, to access um, the, the webinar earlier on. But we will be sending out the full recording um, tomorrow. So a huge, huge thank you to, to all of our speakers um, and for yourselves for, for joining us this evening. Um, so as mentioned at the beginning of the evening, uh, Rep UK will be delivering at least one webinar every month. Um, so the next of which, in fact, is this coming Thursday, where we'll be looking at um, the different grants and benefits um, that are available for people with sight loss, some of which you may not be um, aware of. And we'll send details of how you can register for that, um, as I said, with the follow-up tomorrow. Um, so just to remind you that Retin UK is a registered charity. Uh, we receive no government funding and we re rely um, upon our wonderful supporters to raise the funds needed to provide the vital services and to invest in groundbreaking medical research again as was discussed earlier on this evening. So our 2022 appeal um, seeks to raise £80,000 which will go towards some of the research um, as Cameron was talking about earlier on. We've, we're already, we've come so far um, with our Big Give Christmas challenge um, so thank you if you've already donated we're not quite there yet, so if you are able to, please help us by donating to our appeal. Um, you can do that on our website at www.retinauk.org.uk forward slash appeal, um, or you can call the Retin UK office on 01280 815 900. So we will be sending out an email tomorrow with the details of how you can re-listen or re-watch this evening's presentations and how you can book onto our other events. Uh, we'll also be seeking your feedback on today's session. So um, if you can just take a couple of moments to fill in the short survey, that would be wonderful. We do rely on your feedback to make sure we are doing things um, as you would like us to do so. So once again, thank you ever so much to our speakers and thank you for joining us this evening. I bid you all a good evening. Thank you very much.